Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Alex. Good to be with you this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. Amen. So I uh, just want to invite those through grade four who uh, would like to be in children's church or parents, if you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, you can turn in your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So with much excitement, we're in uh, to our second letter that God has preserved for us. We titled it God's Plan for a Healthy Church. And we'll be in part one today, introduction, as it is our habit. I hope that you spent some time in the Word this week. Let me encourage you, as I always do, uh, to find a, pl- a plan, a pattern where you can read through the, uh, the Word of God each year. You can do that by picking up a Bible reading calendar out on the foyer. Uh, there are plenty on your iPads and your uh, Android apps that can take you through the Bible in a year. Use those things if you would. These are the ways that, uh, this is the way the Lord is going to sanctify you. Uh, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the way you are conformed to the image of Christ. It's to the intake of God's word and the application of what you understand from God's word in your own life. This is your responsibility as the Holy Spirit has empowered you as a follower of Christ to be more like Christ. And so that is not just something that happens abstractly apart from your involvement, but your volition is submitted to the word of God uh, where he has placed, uh, the Lord has placed his emphasis, his written word to you that he has exalted equal to his own name. And so use this year very profitably for you. Uh, a bodily exercise is profitable for some things. And so we want to make sure we do that too at the beginning of the year, right? And keep ourselves in shape. But godliness is profitable for all things. And so that godliness comes as a result of your time in the Word. So let me encourage you to do that. Uh, we're studying 2 Corinthians beginning this morning. It's certainly going to be an exciting book. And I think that uh, perhaps you share my anticipation. I certainly have a great anticipation for what the Lord will do through this book so much here. Uh, one of the things you have to do, of course, at the beginning of every book is really set a foundation upon which to understand the book. So as you come in, uh, you uh, will begin to look in 2 Corinthians just in the beginning sense in these first two verses this morning and Lord willing next Sunday. I'm going to read through verse 11 here in just a minute. But this study is God's plan for a healthy church. That's uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 because I think that really is what the books are all about. Uh, we have a church at Corinth that was a church with some trouble, not unlike churches today. We have a church with some misunderstanding here and misunderstandings, uh, not unlike churches today. Churches, uh, church here with interpersonal issues, not unlike churches today. It's a church with some sin issues, a church with problems weeding out parts of the culture that had no place in the church, uh, not unlike churches today. And so the Lord gives Paul the wisdom to address these things. They can be dressed, uh, addressed in the modern church pro- prophylactically, if you will, so that uh, it stops problems before they start. It can be uh, a remedy to problems that are already there. And so it is as relevant uh, today, amazingly, as it was 2,000 years ago, because the church has really not changed that much as the dynamic interacts uh, with the culture and as people who are from varied backgrounds interact with each other. And so very, very uh, profitable for us And that's not surprising to us, is it? So as we think about churches like that and churches with problems that uh, Corinth certainly uh, were symptomatic of Corinth, we, in spite of all of that and and much more that we didn't touch on just now, of course, Paul ended the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 24, with these words. He said to them, uh, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So who's he speaking to? Well, Paul, uh, Paul is speaking to everyone who labored with him. Paul is speaking to everyone who disrespected him. He's speaking to everyone who's caused trouble to him and to the church, everyone he had to correct, uh, the ones who encouraged him, the ones who refreshed him, uh, the ones uh, he had to reprove, the ones he had to rebuke. Uh, Regardless of what was done or said, he comes at the end of that letter. He wants to make sure that it ends on a tender note, and so he sends his love to all of them. Uh, And uh, this is an ending in this letter, which is not repeated anywhere else in Paul's letters. So despite everything, there isn't the slightest doubt as Paul is dealing with this church is very difficult uh, that he regarded the Corinthians with very tender affection, giving himself to them uh, in many, many ways as a show of his love to them because his love is in Christ Jesus, which who is the benchmark and measure of what that sacrificial love looks like. Now, as we said, uh, with those words, uh, the reader of this letter, 1 Corinthians letter, uh, ceases reading. And so... The questions that I gave you as we as we finished this up back uh, at the very first of December, perhaps it was Timothy who read it, uh, not for sure, but maybe him. When he finished uh, these questions, did they listen to the words? 
and uh, did it solve the problems? And it appears, as we really lay a foundation for this book, it appears that Paul, and we talked about this before, and so you're familiar with this, Paul had written a letter prior to the writing of this 1 Corinthian letter. Uh, we see the indication of that in 1 Corinthians 5.9. It was referred to as the lost, it is referred to now as the lost epistle. And that one didn't appear to have the impact Paul had intended. And we know that after uh, the 1 Corinthian letter, Paul likely sent Timothy with that letter. And uh, Paul left Ephesus and visited Corinth after Timothy's visit there because um, he had seen so much difficulty. Timothy had reported so much difficulty. And that is called the painful visit. So Paul came back to Corinth in what's called the painful visit uh, from 2 Corinthians 2.1. That's where we refer that. That's where we get that understanding. He came and, and it was a painful visit because it appears that he had heard some bad news from Timothy about the church. And the visit there, along with the letter from, that Timothy delivered, does not appear to, to uh, have gone well. And we'll see that later from 2 Corinthians 2, that painful visit, very hard for Paul. And it appears then that there was another letter written after that visit, referred to as the severe letter. So Paul goes and has a painful visit, and he writes a severe letter. And uh, we have that indication in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul appears to have sent that letter to the church with Titus. And we're going to see that as we get through this book. But I just want to kind of give you a big picture, if you will, of what's going on with this church. So uh, Paul has to go after Timothy's there. That visit did not go well. He writes a, a severe letter to them. Uh, and he sends that letter with Titus, according to 2 Corinthians 7. And Paul was so anxious about Titus' safety. And if you remember back in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, let Timothy dwell with you without fear. Do you remember that? And I said, I, I tried to draw the incongruity of, of that statement. So he's writing to the church as he's sending a... Uh, an elder to that church to minister to them and read a letter, and he has to tell the church, let Timothy dwell with you without fear. And so I thought that was very interesting, and I think uh, very, uh, very revealing of really the attitude of churches today, perhaps, and certainly the attitude of this Corinthian church. So he sends Titus with this, with this, uh, this severe letter, and he's so anxious about Titus' safety and the church's reception of that severe letter that he's, he's ministering in Ephesus, of course, but he leaves Ephesus, he goes to Troas, and he tries to look for Titus. And, and even though he's in Troas, and the Bible tells us in Acts that there was a really wide door of opportunity for Paul to minister in Troas, he's so distraught about the rebellion that's going on in, First Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, uh, with many in the church, that he really couldn't even minister there. He said there was a wide open door, but he couldn't minister. And, and he's waiting for news for Titus that many in the church had repented. And so when he finally sees Titus, he's relieved uh, because the severe letter had its effect, on, at least on some. And so he is able to relax in a bit and really focus on ministry again. But he knows the tendency of a factious church to still have some of their old habits under the surface. So perhaps many repented, still the, some basic, uh, basic structure there uh, that is going to kind of raise its, its head. Uh, and some old habits are still there under the surface. So on his way to Philippi, or perhaps in Philippi, Paul pens the letter that we're going to study beginning today. And so that's kind of the history there that kind of gives you an idea of Paul's mindset as he approaches this uh, last letter that he wrote to the church. So the question is, as you see in your notes, did the church heed Paul's words? Well, I, I think it's safe to say, no, uh, it does not appear to be so. So as he finished that letter uh, in 1 Corinthians, which was really the second letter Paul wrote, uh, we still don't have a turning for the church. And when Timothy arrived there uh, with that letter, the question is, do you think he was able to dwell there without fear? Well, considering the reaction to that letter and what he had to do uh, and immediately go to Corinth and then have a severe visit with him, it's unlikely that Timothy dwelt there without fear. So even though he prompted the church, let Timothy uh, hear what Timothy's going to say and respond to what he's going to say, let him dwell with you without fear, it doesn't appear that that was the case. And doubtless, with Paul's very powerful words, there were, were probably some who were chastened by that letter. Uh, but Paul still has to come right away and visit because of the, of the report Timothy brings to him. So it seems obvious that many, many were very stubborn and remained at odds with Paul. And then we, we're going to see in 2 Corinthians that the reason why many of them even, it was exacerbated even more is because Paul has to deal with some false teachers, which is, is normal. So you have Paul there, then you have Apollos there, pa Apollos leaves. Uh, false teachers come in, which is not unusual for a church that's in rebellion. You'll get plenty who will tickle your ears. If you, if you, if you want to cause trouble, you'll find plenty who will lead you along that path. Lord, uh, you know, just say, it's okay if this is what you want to do. I'll give you some that, that will talk to you that way. 
And so it's not un- unlike churches today, very similar to what would happen, what happened here in Corinth. So some, some false teachers came in, and they incited many of them to be very disrespectful and super rude to Paul. We're going to see some of those comments as we go through this letter. And uh, so much so that he had to come to the city and deal with people face-to-face and then write that very severe letter and then, then write this one. And so we know Paul you know, came one more time to the city of Corinth, and from there he wrote the letter to the Romans. And so at that point, after about, and it, it appears, at least five or six years, perhaps seven years of dealing with a very rebellious church whom he planted and ministered to for 18 months, uh, it took five to seven years of struggle as he interacted back and forth with visits and letters for those who caused trouble to finally be gone from there or to repent. And so the church really came, it appears, as you see Paul writing to, to the church in Rome from Corinth, that perhaps things were a little more even keel and he was able to, to deal with another church and write a letter to another church and really introduce them to uh, theology that we see in Romans as we went through that together. So there are two letters God has perver- preserved through us throughout all of Roman antiquity, if you think about that. Uh, the chaos of the barbarian invasions, the uncertainty of medieval times, all that kind of stuff with very few copies perhaps available, just handwritten copies, yet God preserved that for us. And, and as odd as it is to think about, I think we could say throughout, throughout those years, millions of believers have been chastened, they've been corrected, they've been blessed, they've been built up in faith and hope and love by two letters, and here's the thing, that were resisted by their original readers. The letters perhaps it's, I think we could say, maybe much more effective in the modern church on their initial readings than they were even in the original church that they were written to. So that short flyby of Paul's history then gives you the idea and perhaps the mindset Paul is as he approaches this last letter and he's writing some of the things he's been through, the difficult times that he's had, how, how encouraging it is that he, he still deals with them with, with affection, tells them that he loves them, even though they've dealt very harshly with him. He is still in, in very, very much uh, sold out to their to their, uh, to their growth and to their effectiveness and to them being able to be healthy grains of wheat that can fall to the ground and plant and see uh, something come from that. Now, let's read 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11 together, if you will, and then we'll go back and begin to kind of break that down. So look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout all of Achaia. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also are our comfort is is abundant through Christ. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Verse 7, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which we, we came to, to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Verse 11, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's stop right there. And as you may well imagine, that's quite a bit further than we're going to get today. So look back at verse 1 and, and the first word, if you will. First word there is what? Paul, good. And if you want to memorize the first word in all 13 of Paul's letters, you can do it right now because they're all Paul. So easy enough. And if you've been with us for any length of time, that name brings images perhaps to your mind as you think about that. And of course, I always have told you, I always think about Paul 
with the beard and the glasses, you know, kind of me looking up at him and him looking down at me and like, get your act together, Parker. That's kind of how I think about Paul as I read his, uh, his letters. And I don't know how you think about him. That's how I think about him. And uh, so you perhaps have more than just a superficial knowledge about him. Uh, the one who said in Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, a, a wonderful verse. One of these days we're just going to break that verse apart. I just love that. Uh, it just seems so far away from perhaps the average modern church that they would be able to say, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's just so marvelous uh, that Paul could just say that so easily. And obviously from his reproductive life we see uh, that's exactly how Paul lived. And he knew how to obey, so he knew how to abound, and he was comfortable with either one. Just so much there to model. And I think that's precisely why Paul said in Philippians 4.9, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So in other words, as, as I have submitted uh, in your eyes to, to Christ, as I have submitted to live that way, as I have done the things that I should do, Paul says, then look at those things and then reproduce them in yourself, and the God of peace will be with you. So because it's our habit and because it's been a while since we looked at any of this, we're going to take some time today to get to know Paul a little better, and, and we will be in the book of Acts much of today because I think that's very enriching for us to kind of look at Paul, and, and we get even more of a backstory before we get to this Corinthian church uh, to kind of see where he was and what he did. And so Paul, of course, uh, that wasn't always his name. You know, he, that's his new name. Um, his original name was Saul, a Jewish boy with a great a Jewish king's name, and so that's not unusual to see that in university town of Tarsus the center of some Greek culture. Tarsus is located in Cilicia, the northern, uh, northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. I've got some circled up there. He also received a portion of his education in Jerusalem under a very distinguished man of the law, a man by the name of Gamaliel, uh, the grandson of perhaps the most famous rabbi who has ever lived, Hillel, the one that you find mo the most writings for. If you look in ancient uh, Jewish times, you'll see much uh, reproduced from him. During uh, that time, there is reported to have been three great Greek universities, one at Athens, one at Alexandria, and one at Tarsus. So Paul was not only fully versed in Greek culture, fully versed in Greek philosophy, but because of his study under Gamaliel in the Jewish law as well. And so uh, in keeping with tradition in a Jewish family, you know, he has to learn a trade, and so he learned the trade of his father, and that's to work with animal skins, uh, a leather worker, a tent maker. That's really the, uh, the understanding. When you hear tent maker, you're talking about animal skins, someone who cans and sews animal skins to make tents. And so that was not an uncommon occupation in Tarsus. It was Paul's uh, uh, physical occupation, and it was likely that he was educated until perhaps about 13, and then he was taken to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel because then he would be uh, uh, bar mitzvah, he would be a son of the law, and at that point would begin to study under the law, and, and he, uh, he, he studied under Gamaliel, who is recorded for us in, in uh, ancient history as the beauty of the law, because he embodied the Mosaic law and, and the traditions uh, of the law of Israel. So uh, the format, of course, of that learning with Gamaliel would have been uh, very much like we see in the Old Testament. It, it is a, a question and answer format. That's the teaching uh, format for these who are coming to learn the law, memorizing of the scriptures, and then interpretation, and that format really carries over into Paul's reading and uh, teaching, and you can see that as Paul will take a snapshot of the Old Testament, then he will interpret that and bring that right into the modern day for the church, and so Paul just carried that right over. And most historians believe that when he finished his education in Jerusalem, that he returned to Tarsus, and he began to became a leader of the synagogue that was there, so he's back in Tarsus, he has a class classic Greek education, he has an excellent Jewish education, all the credentials to succeed in Ro the Roman world as a citizen. And so he becomes a very zealous Jew, completely committed to the Jewish faith to which he was born. And here's Paul's confidence verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, talks about himself. And here, of course, he's been redeemed and he understands in humility uh, where he was in his own righteousness. But here he says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, Paul says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And so you can't get any more committed, you can't get any more credentialed than that, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's how he looked at himself. Of course, we get to Romans 7, we realize 
that he knew he wasn't blameless, right? After he came to faith, he realized that, uh, that he had studied covetousness, but as soon as he looked at the word covet, he began to see covetousness in his life. And so Paul understands how that all worked, that the law just magnified his own sin. But here, as he says, as, as zeal, as to a persecutor of the church, to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So he's a starter on the team legalist. So if you will, all Pharisee, all state, first team. So he kept the law. He was at the top, the pinnacle of that, of that profession. Now, sometime, sometime during the time he was in Tarsus, if we want to look at a timeline, Jesus' ministry took place. And Saul begins to hear about Jews who are filling the city of Jerusalem with teaching about this Jesus being the Messiah. And so he's angry at this sacrilege, this heresy. He's enraged by what he thought was an attack on Jewish orthodoxy. And so he's ticked. Now, turn with me, if you will, uh, to Acts 5. Verse 29, and we're going to be in Acts for now for quite a while, so you can kind of flip in through a little bit. We'll, we'll take some of the actual events in Acts, and then we'll also skip forward in Acts to when Paul is reciting what happened with him. And so we'll be about all over there, so just do your best to keep up with us, and I'll, I'll do my best to just kind of read those passages. If you want to listen, that's perfectly fine, too. So as you're turning there, uh, just in a snapshot, you know, Peter, John, and others of the apostles, they're teaching in Jerusalem, and they're arrested, and they are warned uh, by the Jewish leaders, and they're released. And then they're picked up again because they just go right back to teaching, and they didn't, break, they didn't even slow up. So as soon as they're released, they're right back out there. They're arrested again. They're put in jail. And then if you remember the story, in the middle of the night, the angel comes, opens the jail, just tells them to go right back out on Solomon's portico, just keep right on teaching. So break of dawn, you know, they're supposed to be in jail. They're right back out there. They're teaching again. And so the Jewish leaders, they come. They send, send the, the guard of the high priest to come to the jail to bring them over to be questioned. Of course, they're not there. The jail's locked up tight. You know, no apostles are in there. They're out preaching. So anyway, so they go and round them up, and they bring them to them, and they say, hey, you know, I thought we warned you not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And then Acts chapter 5, verse 29 records for us, but Peter and the apostles answer and say, we must obey God rather than men. So it's just very straightforward. We're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So not a way to make friends and influence people. I mean, if you you want to be friends with the people in the power, that's probably not what you want to say. Hey, you murdered Jesus, and he's the Messiah. Okay, so they're expecting the Messiah. All, all of their history, they understood the Messiah was going to come, and right away, they get questioned by uh, Peter and the apostles. They say, listen, you know, God of our fathers raised up Jesus. He's the Messiah. He was resurrected. You put him to death. You hung him on a cross. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior. Now, you remember how uh, Pharisees used to get so exacerbated when Jesus would say that God was his father. I mean, that was the reason why they wanted to stone him. Every time he would say and identify himself as the son of man, or, or which Daniel indicates to be the Messiah, or that he indicates that he is God's son, makes him equal with God, that would tick him off. And so Peter, again, just says, like, you murdered him, but he was, uh, you know, God exalted him to the right hand uh, as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Verse 32, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right. And so you hear what they say. Now, just so you don't blame Gamaliel for Saul's attitude, okay, because Saul is ticked, okay, he's in Tarsus, and he's thinking, what is going on in Jerusalem? And he's going to come to Jerusalem, of course, to find out what's going on. And so don't blame Gamaliel for Saul's attitude. Listen to this former teacher. Look at verse 33 of Acts 5. So, Here's the Pharisees and those who are religious leaders. They hear what they say, and when they heard this, they're cut to the quick, and they intended to kill them. But a Pharisee, here it is, named Gamaliel, now we recognize that name, that's Paul's teacher, he's there. A teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So they're all in this, uh, they're all in this building, they're getting, you know, they're about to get killed because of what they just said to these religious leaders. And Gamaliel stands up and says, calm down, calm down. All right, let's ask the guys to go out for a minute, and we're going to have a little talk. And so he says to them, verse 35, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, verse 36, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Verse 37, after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many away away many, some people after him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, this is the case with these apostles of Jesus, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if, their plan, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Verse 39, but if it is of God, 
you'll not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now that seems to be reasonable and prudent advice, doesn't it? So Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, stands up and says, chill out. Okay, you're boiling over about this. Listen, there's a couple of examples of people who rose up and they claim to be somebody and they've had some followers and these were all of men and they got all overthrown. The followers were scattered or killed. So listen, um, you, need to, you need to think about this. Just leave these guys alone. Now verse 40 says this, and they agreed with him. Everybody's like, yes, yes, okay, that sounds good. And then when they called for the apostles, now catch this, and beaten them. So Gamaliel says, hey, leave these guys alone. You know, you're get, if you're fighting against them and they are of God, this, this is going to be bad for you. You're going to fight against God. So they said, yeah, yeah, you're right, Gamaliel, you're right. So bring them in. Let's beat them. So they beat them. And then he commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So, you know, so they heard him but went ahead and beat them anyway. And so they were not convinced. And guess what? Neither was Saul. And a great persecution breaks out, and now Saul is right in the middle of this, okay? And so fast forward to Stephen. He's preaching the gospel very powerfully. No one is able. Look at Acts chapter 7. You can turn there if you would. Acts 7, 57. So Stephen starts preaching. He's very powerful. Nobody's able to refute him, okay? All the religious leaders are out there, and he's talking, and they are just silenced by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen. And so uh, nobody can resist him. Nobody can answer his questions. Nobody can, uh, he, asks, he gets asked questions. He can answer them. And nobody, everybody's like, wow, where is this guy getting his power? And so they make up some, they send some people out there to falsely accuse Stephen of saying things he didn't say. And so they arrest him and he gets taken before this council and he gives them a history lesson of their nation. So that surely annoyed uh, the council, right? Because he, they get schooled and this is Israel from the start of Israel all the way up to the present. He gives us this history lesson all the way through the fathers, all the way through the patriarchs, all the way to the present. And he tells them then at the end of that part that they murdered every prophet that foretold of the Messiah. And then uh, they, when the Messiah came, they murdered him too. And so again, you know, not a way to, you know, endear yourself to people who were over you. I mean, they didn't care, did they? They weren't concerned about whether they impressed those who were religious leaders over them. They told the truth. Hey, you murdered every prophet that talked about Jesus. And when Jesus came, you, you murdered him too. And his blood's on your hands. So, look at Acts chapter 7.57. And, um, you know, Stephen must have been pretty convincing because he really gets them going. And so, verse 57 says this. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. So they covered their ears because they're hearing blasphemy, they don't want to hear it. And they rushed at him with one impulse. So remember Gamaliel, hey, leave these guys alone. Don't mess with them. If, you, if you're resisting them, you're going to be fine. And, and they're from the Lord. You're going to find yourself resisting God. Okay? So they're not listening. Okay? And they, uh, verse 58 says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet, catch it, of a young man named Saul. So Saul's now back in Jerusalem. He's finding out what's going on here. It's worse than he even thought it was. Here's Stephen taking him on a history lesson and then blaming them for murdering all the prophets and then blaming them for murdering the Messiah. And Paul's enraged because they didn't think he was the Messiah. And so they're ticked. And so verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, verse 60, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for he died. But that's the way it's talked about as you talk about a believer. Uh, he fell asleep. Now look at Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So there was not any, you know, troubling of his soul. He's wrestling with the whole thing. Maybe this isn't what we should be doing. And none of that. Gamaliel was his teacher. Very prudent, very reasonable man. Seemed like he gave good advice uh, to the council. And that was Paul's teacher. Spent a lot of time with him. And yet, Paul is in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So people who were disciples, they are scattered. I mean, uh, Paul and all those with him, they are chasing them down, finding out if there's any, if there's any uh, accusation of somebody who's following the way. They're finding out where they are, what's their address. They're hauling them in. They're killing them. They're putting them in prison, all that kind of stuff. And so it scatters, it scatters out of uh, Jerusalem the gospel. So the Lord... The Lord accomplishes his purpose, and he sends all these disciples out. And some devout men, verse 2, uh, men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, what was going on in Saul's mind during this time? 
I mean, what was he actually thinking? Because we just see his actions, but what was he thinking? And we have to turn to Acts 26, verse 9 in order to get that. So hold your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 9. And here he has been taken in, arrested, uh, and he is testifying to King Agrippa. And so Paul's on his way uh, to a trial in Rome eventually. But here he is before King Agrippa, and he's testifying of what was going on in his mind. And so he gives a history lesson, of course, and he talks about his own interaction with uh, Jesus and with the disciples. And here's what he says in Acts 26, 9. He says, so then I thought to myself, see where we are, that I had to do what? Many things hostile to the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So what was going on in his mind? Well, it says right there. So I thought to myself, that's after he heard what Stephen said, and all that he saw going on in Jerusalem, much worse than he even thought of it was when he was in Troas. He says, I thought to myself, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, now in Acts 26, he knows that's who he was doing hostile things against. But when we go back to Acts chapter 7, he thinks he's doing the work of the Lord, doesn't he? He thinks he's doing God's will, stomping out this, this heresy and all that stuff. And in his mind, he's just going to put a stop to this whole thing. Now look at verse 10 of Acts 26. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, so not only were they being locked up in prison, they are being put to death for this, I cast my vote against them. I had to do many hostile things to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what I did, Paul said, verse 11. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged, so he's furious with them, he's ticked off to the max, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So it wasn't comfortable even just doing it in Jerusalem. That wasn't enough. I had to do many things hostile to this name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm chasing them down wherever they go. So there was a big diaspora that went out. It's this persecution uh, took place, and out go the Jews uh, to all these places to get away from this persecution. I and mean, he is after them, okay? Paul's taking trips, and he's going to find them. He's going to chase them down. He's hauling them back. He's going to throw them in prison. He's going to put them to death. So he's really, shot, he's really irritated against this former teacher's best advice. He's doing opposite of what he was told. He's zealous. He's enraged at this and uh, what he would consider a cult. Now look back at Acts chapter 8, so you can flip back now. And that's exactly what we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He was in hearty agreement. Not just, well, you know, okay, maybe that's what he deserves. Kill him. That's Paul. Put him to death. He doesn't deserve to live. Verse 3. But Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. And that word ravaging is the same word used for an army decimating a city. Paul's just enraged. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So Paul was uh, Saul was responsible for scattering the church everywhere, the opposite of what he really wanted to have happen. And the passion, of course, I think that, that Paul had during this time that he persecuted the church really carried over to the, to the passion that he had on behalf of Christ. So I think you can see a little bit of, of Paul's determination and his commitment to doing what he thought was right. So we have this man who's just ravaging the church, and his passion is about stomping out this thing he calls a heresy, but the same passion, he brings this now in redemption, the same passion, he brings this commitment to carrying out the gospel on behalf of Christ. And, and Acts 26, 11, Saul says that he even persecuted them in foreign cities, and, and, and he somehow got word that there was a big group of them in Damascus. Now look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. So he's going to foreign cities, and he, if you've got this on your notes, go ahead and move on. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Um, so he knows they're in foreign cities. He gets, he, gets this side, he gets this understanding. There's a big group of them in Damascus. And so Acts 9, 1 says this. Now Saul, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he's just looking around. He's just saying, who's next? You know, it's, it's kind of like you ever watch UFC. I mean, after, after the guy gets finished trashing the guy in the ring, he just kind of looks around and says, who wants, who wants me next? It's kind of like that. And Paul's just, he's going from one guy to another guy to another guy. And so he's just looking around. And so he went to the high priest uh, in Jerusalem, asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus. So obviously uh, some type of credential. So when he shows up there in, in Damascus, he starts hauling people off. You know, he doesn't get arrested himself. So he wants some kind of credential that would introduce him to the Damascus officials. So he's going to go there. He's going to say, hey, I'm Paul. Here I'm Saul. I've been doing a whole bunch of good stuff. 
uh, against the way, and I'm here to help you with it, and uh, I know what to do, and, you know, I've got a lot of uh, notches on my belt, if you will, of Christians I put in prison and those who I've killed, and so, hey, I'm here to help you. So, not content with just Jerusalem, this is an obsession for Saul, a vendetta, he wants all Christians exterminated, uh, sounds a little bit like Haman from from the story of Esther. So he goes off to Damascus. It's about 160 miles from Jerusalem. So it's a city of a couple hundred thousand people, and it would take Saul's caravan about six days to get there. And so he goes. So it says that if he found, verse 2, any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it became a title for Christians. They were part of the way. Uh, this way, of course, the wrong way, according to Saul, but they were the way, this way to God through Christ, which they considered uh, heresy. So if he could find any, no matter who they were, he's going to bind them, he's going to bring them back. And then a very interesting thing happens. Look at verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, Acts chapter 26, verse 13 says it was midday when this happened. So midday in the Judean desert, so it's pretty bright already. And so this light is brighter than a midday sun. So bright enough to blind everyone, make them fall to the ground. And so that must have been some kind of light. And perhaps that was, and it's likely that it was, the Shekinah glory of God. So like we looked at two weeks ago uh, when the angels came and they worshipped with the shepherds and they had the Shekinah glory of God shining all around them. Uh, perhaps this was the same kind of light. But anyway, it blinded everybody. Everybody fell to the ground. So it's likely that's what it was. Super bright, a lot brighter than the moon, noonday sun. Verse 4, and he fell to the ground. So Saul falls to the ground. Everybody else as well, according to Acts 26. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you think about this, some people really need a dramatic thing to happen to get their attention. And as Saul was so focused, he had it in his mind to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he thought in his mind that's what he should do. He was completely focused, uh, zeroed in on that. And so this dramatic thing happens. So, so verse 5 says this, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So stop right there. Now, goads were long sticks with a nail attached to the end. And what the driver of the oxen did is they poked the heels of the oxen as they were walking along to make them move more quickly. So, you know, that hurts. And so the, the, the leg goes fat, forward more quickly and the oxen kind of speed up. And so um, Jesus then says he's responsible for this goading. He's responsible for Saul's irritation. That's the, that's the illustration. You're very irritated, and I'm the reason why you are. And I guess the words here really don't express, if you think about this whole thing, the absolute panic Saul must have been in. So he knows this is God speaking to him. He recognizes this light and he's blinded. He hears the words and he calls the speaker Lord. And perhaps if you think about it, perhaps he remembers Gamaliel's words. You know, you may find yourself not fighting against men, but fighting against God. And Jesus confirms that very thing. You are fighting against me, and I'm, go I'm, goading. I'm the one who's goading you. You're fighting against me. You know, all over the reason, uh, region, he's persecuting Christians, and now he's facing the one he's actually been persecuting, Jesus the Lord. And I, you can't, I don't know that you can imagine the dread and the panic that was overwhelming to Saul, right? So he's focused. He thinks he's doing God's will. He's ignored what Gamaliel said. He's just been just on a rampage, nobody can approach him, anybody walks up to him, it's not going to happen, he just takes him prisoner, he puts him in prison, he kills them, okay, and so he realizes what's going on here, and so it's very hard to communicate that horrifying reality that Saul must have felt in the midst of, you know, this blinding light, hearing I'm Jesus, and just imagine yourself as you've been doing something perhaps in your life, or maybe with your children, or with your wife, and you realize that you were wrong, and that very moment you realized you were wrong, that feeling, I think multiplied by 10 perhaps is, is as at the level that perhaps Paul felt as he hears this from the Lord in the middle of this blinding light, uh, hearing, I'm Jesus. Jesus who went around doing good, Jesus who went around healing, delivering from demons, you know, gave life back from the dead, you know, Jesus who was crucified, rejected by Israel, Jesus whom Stephen had called upon in his death, and Saul was right there, you know, Jesus who he hated, Jesus whose followers he had mercilessly persecuted, Jesus who was alive and speaking to him now in this trip, to Damascus and all of his anger and all his actions really I'm sure brought Paul to despair and I think we can see that easily we'll look at a verse in just a minute that, that, that perhaps reveals that so he's crushed and obviously repentant uh, he is overwhelmed and so uh, his sin was huge it was huge and he, he got the picture of it like instantaneously just how big a mistake he'd been making 
His whole life is wrapped up in the obliteration of the church. Had it been up to Paul, the church would have been exterminated at its very birth. That was Paul's desire. Just stomp it all out, no more church, and we'll be back like we should be. And so when we read 1 Timothy 1, 13, I think we know that the Apostle Paul never forgot the enormity and the extreme nature of his sin. 1 Timothy 1, 13 says, I was formerly a blasphemer. That's precisely what he tried to get all the people he arrested do. He thought they were blasphemers anyway for believing in Christ, that Jesus was equal to God. He said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man. A violent, arrogant, aggressive man. Insolent. So separated from whom I was persecuting. So sure of my own righteousness. So wrapped up in my own right cause. I was insolent. Nobody could talk to me. I knew what was right. I was the smartest kid in the room. I knew what was going on. Okay? This is Paul. And I think that's a super, just to kind of pause for a minute, I think that's a super important principle for our own lives, isn't it? And maybe we weren't involved in the persecuting of the church because here in America that probably didn't happen. But I bet if you had a church somewhere else, that might be indeed the case. Insolent persecutor of Christ. You know, I've, I've got to do hundreds and hundreds of baptisms. And, and I've told you before, I've been so moved by some of the testimonies when, when people give them from the water and just name their sins. And I imagine in other parts of the world, you have people who are being baptized who name those sins. An insolent persecutor of Christ and understand the depth of their sin. But I think it's important, regardless of what our background is, that we remember. I think that's important to balance us out. The longer we're in the faith, the more right we think we are, perhaps the more righteous we look at ourselves, and, and less uh, merciful we look at other people. And I think it's important to remember, you know, Paul, he, I was a formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. I was violently arrogant and aggressively arrogant. And I'm sure he looked back at all those believers whose lives he'd taken, and there must have been such remorse in his heart. Yet, he says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I was in unbelief, and I was ignorant. Now, that's a pretty big switch, right? Because Paul was well-educated, wasn't he? Both in Greek culture and in the law. I mean, he, he was first team. So when he says, I was ignorant, I was ignorant in my unbelief. I didn't know anything, really, as I should know. And the grace of our Lord, catch this, was more than abundant. With faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus, it was more than abundant. So Paul says, listen, there was more than enough grace for me to be redeemed. There was more than enough grace for me to stand in right now. And that's where we stand too, right, isn't it? There's more than enough grace. That's where you are. You're in grace. Your sin was pardoned, inexcusably pardoned by Christ because of his work on the cross and your belief and faith. So Paul says, our Lord Jesus was more, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus was more than abundant. Regardless of your sin, beloved, the grace of the Lord Jesus is more than abundant to cover all of it. And that's how we deal, and that's supposed to be how we deal with other people, right? That's a great way to remember how you're dealing with other people who you think are, are much more sinful than you. The grace of Jesus is more than abundant to cover your sin, and that grace is what you give other people too. And faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Again, a great thing to remember. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Please don't fall into the trap of thinking somehow that you are more righteous than someone else. You stand in grace, and grace more than sufficient to cover your sin, just like everyone else, okay? So on the Damascus Road, he was wonderfully transformed, marvelously transformed. He was crushed, he was speechless, certainly devastated. Acts 9-9 says he went three days without his sight, without food and water, likely halfway to Damascus, this happens. He goes the other three days. He's being led along. He can't see anything. He doesn't drink anything. He doesn't eat anything. Okay? And listen, there wasn't any human Christian who could have witnessed to him. Somebody comes up to him. It's not happening. I mean, in, Paul's old, in Saul's old state, I mean, he just would have eaten them up. It had to be the Lord who intervened there. Even after he was converted and he wanted to meet with the apostles, you know, nobody would meet with him. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, sure you are, sure, Paul. You know, they wouldn't let him in. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 20. This describes Paul completely, okay? Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Just stick with me here. It's, it's this wor I think it's very worthwhile to both get his understanding uh, and his interaction with Corinth, and then the basis of which he had so much patience and so much grace to deal with this very divisive church 
and you look at his background, you realize kind of where he's coming from. Great models, all these things just, they on their own provide uh, message material. We could just study those things, just little snapshots of Paul's uh, attitude. And we do that at the end of the book, so as he talks about the things he's doing, we know that. But uh, I mean, we could do all of this here. I just want to give you a kind of a history thing, kind of a, a, a context for which we can kind of grab hold of what's going to happen in the book. Because this Second Corinthians book, and I, I'm kind of uh, alluding to what I'm going to talk about next week. The Second Corinthians book is different in the respect that in the First Corinthians book, there's there's a ton of correction that goes on, where Paul just takes one thing after another, says you know about you know as as we're talking about people in the church and taking each other to court, as we're talking about. Um, uh, uh, sinfulness inside the church, uh, someone's living with someone who's not their wife, as, as we talk about the communion and what, what you do at communion, and as we talk about spiritual gifts. So he just goes through one thing after another, just says, this, this is the correction, this is the correction. As you get to 2 Corinthians, you really see Paul just revealing his own heart. So he's, he's not correcting them as much. There is some, and there's some instruction there, but just really kind of Paul just talking about himself, where he is, what he's gone through. You don't see that much in the first letter that we have preserved, but you see it a lot in the second letter. So there's going to be a lot of differences here that you'll, I think you'll enjoy. So uh, he says this in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. So this, this describes Paul. So he's on his way to Damascus. He's going to persecute everybody he finds that's connected with the way. The Lord redeems him, calls him, and so he's changed. Three days he goes there, and you know the story. And uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 20 says this. So he gets a sight back, and, and uh, the things that go on there. And then verse 20 says this. Immediately... Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, so he was, was going to go to the synagogues, and he's going to get names of people to haul him back to Jerusalem. Now, immediately, he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Verse 21, and those hearing him continued to be amazed, and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? I mean, how long ago was that? Like yesterday? I mean, he's on his way to do this. We get word, you know, watch out for Paul. You know, this, is, this guy's a roaring lion. And, and then immediately he starts proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So immediately he turns around, and so all of his great learning uh, has become beneficial to him because now he connects all the dots immediately. He's like, this is the Messiah. Of course this is the Messiah. This is who I've been studying all my life. This is the one. And so he is a powerful teacher. He's a powerful arguer. And so he keeps increasing in strength. He's confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I mean, they must have been so annoyed. That's like, you know, they're getting a tick on their face and they're looking at Paul like, I mean, I thought you were coming here to help us. What in the world? Now we can't even, we can't even answer you. But you're like, wow, overwhelming. And then, verse 23, this is so typical, when many days have elapsed, so they got that tick on their eye every time Paul comes in, like, I can't talk to this guy. So they just decide what? They plotted together, do away with him, and just kill him. All right, we're just going to kill him. That's just the first of many urges, okay, of people who talk to Paul. Hey, we can't, we can't confound him. We can't argue with him. He's overwhelming to us. Let's just kill him. All right, we'll just kill him. And we'll just be done with it. And that's Paul's life in everything, right? All the way Full throttle, he's a great arguer, and wherever he went, eventually people just wanted to kill him. They couldn't argue with him. He's very overwhelming. He's very commanding as he speaks to them. And so, hey, let's just do away with them. And, you know, Galatians 1.11, you don't have to turn there, but in following, Paul says he received all the knowledge from the gospel that he has from Jesus himself. And, and that, uh, he spent some time in Arabia, about three years, and so the, the Lord instructed Paul there. So Paul got his instructions in the gospel from Jesus. How many would like to sit in the class, new church member class, here's how you present the gospel, Jesus is teaching. Well, we'll get that in a thousand-year know, thousand reign. You, you can sit in that class, I'm sure. Uh, of course, you know the gospel, and, and you'll, you'll be able to expand that knowledge. But, I mean, Jesus is teaching Saul out in the desert. Here's the gospel. Here's how you teach it. That's pretty amazing. So, that's what qualified him to be an apostle. This is the footnote there. First, he had seen the resurrected Lord, and secondly, he received direct revelation from him. So, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, look at Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So you go away to Damascus, you come back, and you say you're a disciple. Sure you are. You know, that's an old trick. 
you're pretending to be somebody you're not. Verse 27, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas was filling them all in and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews and they again were attempting to put him to death. So he goes to Damascus, he's, he's, he's describing all this stuff to the guys in Damascus. They just say, let's just kill him. He comes back to Jerusalem, he's talking to the guys in the synagogue, the Jewish leaders, let's just kill him. So it's just, just a, a knee-jerk reaction, just kill this guy and everybody's going to be better off. Look at verse 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So they find that, you know, the Jews want to kill him, so let's get him out of town, and that makes us feel a little bit better too, you know, a collective sigh as he exits. You know, it's like, ah, you know, if he was a fake, at least he's not around here anymore. And if he's real, at least he's not stirring up everybody. And not, you know, they're going to want to kill everybody, not just Saul. So they sent him on his way. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So Saul goes, everybody takes a collective sigh of relief and just like, okay, let's keep on doing our thing. That's pretty cool. Saul's doing that. Let's send him away a little bit. Let's see if it's going to stick. Okay, let's, you know, he's pretty far away in Tarsus. And as he's in Tarsus, Acts 15, 41 says he founded some churches there. And after his time in Tarsus, Barnabas came uh, to look for Saul because there was a church in Antioch and it needed a teacher. Now, Acts chapter 11, verse 25. So flip there. We're almost done. So stick with me. All right, so uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 25, and then we're going to be at Acts 13. So we're going to skip two here at a time. Acts 11, 25. So he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so while they were in Antioch, they collected money for saints in Jerusalem, and they took it to them. And then returning, look at Acts chapter 13. So I'm, I'm giving you an overview here, a flyby, if you will. And you've read all this, of course, and so you know the story. But Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church, that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord, and they were fasting. So they are seeking the Lord's will. It's a brand new church. They're doing some fasting, something that we find absent a lot from modern-day churches and the ministry that goes on there. But fasting, and they were ministering to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away, and so they went out by the Holy Spirit. Now stop right there. Now that right there is the beginning of the ministry for which the Lord called him on the road to Damascus. He, he had his... He had his, uh, uh, you know, apprenticeship, if you will, in Damascus. He had his apprenticeship and his teaching time in the desert of Arabia so that the Lord could instruct him in the gospel and, and teach him what to teach the churches and what to do. And so he does that. Then he goes to Tarsus and he comes to Antioch and the Lord commissions him to go and he, he's very effective. And so that's the beginning of the ministry. The Lord called him on the road to Damascus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And then from chapter 13 of Acts till chapter 21, Paul takes three great missionary journeys. And really, the triumph, really, of the gospel is just proclaimed in those missionary journeys. They weren't easy for Paul. I mean, many times he, he was thrown out of cities. Many times he was stoned. Many times he was lowered out of in the city in a basket to get away. A lot of times he was persecuted. Lots of riots broke out because he was just speaking the words of the Lord. He, wasn't, he didn't care about uh, making sure everybody felt good. He didn't care about uh, making sure everybody was okay with what he was saying. He just gave the gospel out. Very, very uh, reproductive in his, in his understanding. Just very incredible, very energized by the Holy Spirit. He accomplished things really far beyond what we can imagine. As the Lord had prepared uh, the world at this time for the gospel, and history tells us that at the close of the apostolic period, perhaps uh, the end of the first century, approximately 500,000 Christians. From Jesus to 500,000 Christians at about 90 A.D., somewhere in that area. That's pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, only the Lord knows how many were as a result of Paul's efforts. But he was a super effective tool, and I think we can certainly argue that. Uh, without the printed page or, or media of any kind, um, you know, just has had a reproductive lifestyle. And towards the end of his time uh, on earth, he, he tells Timothy what that lifestyle looks like, what that what the philosophy of ministry looks like in 2 Timothy 2.1. And he says to Timothy, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What do you be strong in? You be strong in your talents and your speaking ability? Are you strong in your administrative ability, you know? Are you strong in all these? No, not any of these things that are on the outside. Be strong what? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, a reminder. 
Where do you minister from? You minister from grace. How do you witness to people? From grace. How do you deal with your spouse? How do you deal with your loved ones? How do you deal with your kids? How do you deal with, you know, unsaved uh, uh, people who you're witnessing to? You stand in grace. Be strong in that. Not in your rightness, not in your, your accomplishments, whatever. Strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's precisely what Paul did, isn't it? He found many who, would, who, would, who would re, he could reproduce into, and he sent them out, and he told those guys, find people you can reproduce, in, and then send them out and let them do their thing. Very effective tool. Now, look back at verse 1. This is right at the end here, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Look at verse 1. We'll see how it begins his letter to them. Again, we saw Paul, and um, we're going to kind of move into more of the text here today and then next week. That's the way the Greeks typically wrote a letter. They said Paul, so back at 2 Corinthians 1. They start with the name of the author. We saw that in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and that seems a lot more reasonable than putting your name at the end. Uh, because unless it's a business letter, you know, if you get a letter from someone, of course, it's kind of uh, ancient history. You don't get many handwritten letters anymore. But if you get a letter from someone, at least I have over the course of a ministry, I look to the bottom to see who wrote it to see if I'm going to believe what's in the middle. Right? I mean, just be realistic. You know, if it's written by some people, you're like, okay, well, I'll read this, but I'm not taking this to heart. You know, so Paul puts his name right at the beginning. That's how Greeks wrote it, you know. And so they wrote a letter. They started off by saying, you know, first of all, this is me talking to you. And, uh, and, of course, email is great that way because uh, even before you open it, you know who sent it. So, you know, if you even have to open it or you can just say, you know, delete before it even, you know, before you pull it up. So that's the usual form of a Greek letter. It begins with the name of the author and, and then it identifies the reader, such as this last part of verse 1. Look at verse uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 1. I, Paul, and he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. And then he, his greeting then goes like this in verse 2. He says, um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to go back and look at those things, of course, and talk about what that means. But I just wanted you to see kind of how this is set up. We've seen in Paul's other letters, it's very typical format for him. And he had a classic Greek education, so it's not surprising. This is what, how he would start it. Now, he established his identity, and then immediately, look at verse 1, he establishes his authority as an apostle. Now, this is something um, that Paul repeatedly did, and there are many reasons why he did this. And so... You know, Peter does it. Peter says Peter, uh, an apostle. James and Jude call themselves bondservants. They say uh, Jude, a bondservant. James says James, a bondservant of the Lord. John identifies himself, John the Elder. And so, uh, of course, not all the apostles wrote in the New Testament, but nevertheless, Paul is the one who continually identifies himself as an apostle. And there appears to be some very specific reasons why he does this, and we'll look at them and then close. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he identifies this calling to be in identification with Christ and by God's expressed will. So, I mean, you can't look at it and think anything else, okay? He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God has willed it that I be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So it just established a very clean line of authority so people can, you know, and he's not doing this so, you know, he can gain some kind of self-glory. You know, we like to put lots of titles in front of names uh, for numerous reasons and behind names for uh, numerous reasons, but, but the purpose doesn't have to be for glory. It doesn't have to be for vainglory to draw attention to yourself or any way, to actually be establishing some kind of authority. And, and we can, if we translate that into 2 Corinthians 1, I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's not saying, I'm an apostle, be jealous, okay, because you're not one. Um, he, he's saying, he does say that one, I shouldn't say he never says that, he does say that sometimes. Uh, you aren't one and, you shouldn't, and, and people shouldn't be listening to you. Um, and he says some other really interesting things that if a pastor said that in the church, he'd probably be asked to leave. But Paul says it to his, to his readers, okay? And so we'll get to those parts. And so he says, uh, you know, he, he's just established him authority. Uh, he's saying, I'm an apostle, and there's an authority in this position. Please listen to me. I have authority, and I speak with authority. And, and what I'm trying to say to you comes from Jesus Christ at the will of God. That's my calling. And, and that's, in some ways, an introduction. In some ways, uh, hey, you might want to listen because, you know, there's going to be some accounting later. And I'm telling you up front, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So what I say is going to be important. You're going to have to do it. And if you don't do it, you know, the Lord's going to come in eventually and have an accounting. So that's my calling. I'm an apostle from uh, Jesus Christ at the will of God. So it has nothing to do with vanity. It has nothing to do with self-glory. Absolutely, totally disdains self-glory. You know how Paul is, a personal merit. I am the worst of sinners. I'm chief. I mean, I blaspheme the Lord. I mean, he's, he's got the correct understanding of his own worth. He stands in grace. That's his position. He considered himself the least of the apostles. I don't deserve any of this. I am what I am by the grace of God. 
And, and so it's not uh, for that reason he calls himself an apostle. He's, he's a sent one, an ambassador, so an envoy, if you will, a messenger of Jesus Christ. So first it's to give authority to what he says. And then secondly, it identifies his relationship with the twelve. And so those are parts of your notes if you want to jot those down. I think, and just to explain that briefly, because we only have a few moments left, here's the thing. As you know, there were originally 12 disciples, and one of them was disqualified, and his name was Judas, and he came to a very ugly end. So his place is taken, according to Acts 1, by a man named Mattathias, and, and the ranks of the 12 then are filled back up again. Now, um, they became really the foundation uh, for the early church. They became the authoritarian group, if you will, as you come to Acts chapter 6. And it is the apostles that are really running the church. Uh, even in Acts 2, the people were studying the apostles' doctrine. That's the apostles' teaching. And so when they got together, they would study what these apostles are saying, what they were writing, those kinds of things. And that really laid the foundation for the church. And the 12 were known by the church as the authoritative voice of Christ. Now, on top of this, here comes this sort of new kid on the block by the name of Paul. One who, at first introduction to the church, is breathing out all kinds of threatening uh, 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 threats and, be, and slaughter and killing Christians and maiming them and all the things we talked about. And, and so he's not lived, he had not lived and walked with Jesus in his pre-death years. He hadn't seen, according to them, the resurrected Christ before he ascended into heaven. And so uh, the qualifications for an apostle, according to the scriptures, Acts 1, were that they know Christ in his pre-resurrection reality and that they had specifically and personally and directly be chosen by Christ and that they had uh, seen the resurrected Christ and been called specifically by him. So in Acts 1, as they looked for Mattathias, they said these are some of the qualifications that have to be in place for Mattathias to be brought in. And so um, that's one of the reasons we don't have any apostles today, just as a kind of a side note. The reason there couldn't be uh, any in the past either, um, because no one since then has seen the living resurrected Christ and been specifically commissioned by him. He's ascended into heaven and he's going to come back someday. So we don't have that duplicated at any point, okay? So it would appear that the apostolate had ceased. It was foundational according to Ephesians 2.20. But then here comes Paul, and he comes along a little bit late, and so people were saying, yeah, Paul, huh, you know, we hear what you're saying, uh, but you're not one of the 12. You're not one with authority. And so he continually establishes that he has authority and that he was, in fact, the one who saw Christ. And so we understand, as he testified in Acts 26, that he... He saw Christ, he was commissioned by Christ, Christ called him, taught him, and so he was, he, he had the authority he was, he said that he had. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he talks of himself and he says, and last of all, one who is untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul saw him on the Damascus Road uh, at his conversion. He saw him in blazing glory. He was blinded by him. And you remember then further than that, the Lord appeared to him on other occasions and taught him and appeared to him in Jerusalem and later telling him he would go to Rome. And he appears to him in Corinthia, in, in, uh, in the, well, he's in the town of Corinth and says, hey, you know, uh, don't worry. I've got many people in this town. Just teach and preach and do what you're supposed to do. Uh, you know, people were not going to harm you. And so he identifies his relationship with the 12 so that he is accepted in equality for the sake of his teaching. So Paul, all 13 books, says, I, Paul, an apostle. He identifies himself as that for the authority that comes with that and to identify with the 12 so that he has the ability to have a platform on which to teach. So this is a sinful man whom God called to do a work at just the right time who stood in grace in his redemption and then he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. We're going to stop right there because we're out of time. And I think that that, as we think about this, as kind of I put on a hat of a teacher more than a preacher today, I think that you understand some of this groundwork. But I think, too, as we think about Paul, as he talked about himself, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. That's a good thought for each of us as we kind of close up as well. And you know, not apostles, of course, but by the grace of God, you are who you are. The Lord has brought you to his throne in grace. You stand in that grace. You are who you are. And, of course, our desire is that that grace towards us not prove vain, right? Whoever we are, and we've talked, looked at the spiritual gifts, we looked at how that works and related to your faith and all that kind of stuff, but whoever you are, however you've been gifted, we want to make sure we stand in that grace as we minister. We understand uh, the position that we really are in, which is one of grace. He's pardoned our sin, not because of our good deeds, but because of his good grace, and then we want to make sure that that grace 
towards us did not prove vain. We want to make sure we exercise those gifts throughout the course of our life, doing the things the Lord has desired for us to do. Not be on a sidetrack, not be somewhere else besides where you can be effective for the Lord. Wherever you are, do those things, and may our labor for the kingdom reflect just that. Let's close in a word of prayer as we uh, move on to our uh, time after. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word. Lord, we thank you again for uh, this marvelous uh, reproductive life of, of Paul, which we get to see, which you document, of course, very clearly. Thank you for the writings. Thank you for uh, the effectiveness in which he ministered because it was all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, very uh, gracious ministry, but very powerful, very direct, unafraid to say the things that need to be said, all done, though, in love, which is the giving of himself to the church. Thank you uh, for the things we'll learn in this next letter. I pray that we'll be uh, an effective ministry uh, for you that you might use the church in a powerful way, in a way that you see fit by all of us as we bring all the gifts that we have, as Ephesians 4 tells us, together by all that you supply, that we may effectively work for the kingdom's advancement. Help us all individually be in your word each, each uh, day as we go into this new year, that we might be able to be conformed. Your Holy Spirit has one will. If we are in your word, we'll understand what it is. It certainly is going to start with... Uh, uh, grace certainly and love and joy and peace certainly don't want to be like the ones who discouraged paul the ones who were always critical we want to be like the ones who paul says filled me up encouraged me it's not because paul was soft not because paul uh, didn't say hard things it was because they understood uh, that this is how the church grows and lord i pray that you will be like that as well thank you for the many who minister here thank you for all those who come on board and given themselves away each week and thank you for the sacrifice that they make. You've richly rewarded them and continue to do that. We have no doubt. We're grateful as a church that you've chosen to work here and obviously are awake and alive here through the power of your Holy Spirit and lives of the people who love you. And so, Lord, guide us as we teach. Lord, guide me, I pray. Exclude those things which are uh, false emphasis or bad emphasis and in include those things which are beneficial for the church as I pray every week that your flock and your people may be encouraged and grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that will be the case. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen.